man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is the word of God. Thanks, Jay. Good evening, church. Um, just uh, some housekeeping rules. We actually going to be looking at verses one till eight uh, this evening. So please keep that passage open um, that Jared read for us. Uh, it's going to be of great help for me as we look at God's word together this evening. If you are joining us for the very first time um, today. My name is Black. I'm the young adults pastor here at Christchurch Midrand, and you have caught us in week four um, of the second half of our series titled Under Construction. We started this series last year in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we stopped and then we continued this year. This is week four um, of that second half. Um, and it's been a joy for me. It's been a joy for most of us sitting in this room. Amen. And man, okay, there's only two people who've been here the past four weeks, okay? It's good. We're working with something. We're going somewhere. Um, so it's been a joy. Uh, it's been a real encouragement for me um, uh, just going through the Gospel of Mark. And I pray that if you're joining us today, uh, that this would also be uh, an encouragement to you. And uh, the question was asked earlier on you know, about being a hypocrite. Uh, I thought to myself, how do I make a sermon about hypocrisy encouraging? Uh, <laughs> So we trust the Holy Spirit that he will do his work um, and that you would walk out of here really wanting to live for Jesus. Uh, this series is about discipleship, uh, this process that God has called us into to walk with Jesus as he makes us look like himself. Amen. Amen. Um, so let's start here this evening. Uh, have you ever heard of the experiment with the five monkeys? No, I that's good. If you said yes, that would be weird, right? Um, but let me tell you about the, the five monkeys. So, so five monkeys were placed in a cage by scientists, uh, and they put a, a step ladder in the ladder in the in the cage, and on top of the ladder was a bunch of bananas. And so, what the monkeys would then do, uh, like any monkey, right, would decide, hey, I want a bunch of bananas. And so one monkey climbed up, went to the top to get the bananas. And so what happens is that the monkey, the four monkeys that are left at the bottom, they would be hosed down with heavy water by the scientists, right? And so then the monkey comes down with a bunch of bananas, chows them, they replace the bananas. And then a second monkey thinks, hey, there's more bananas. Let me climb and go get the bananas. So the second monkey climbs up, gets the bananas. What happens to the four monkeys that are left on the bottom? They go to get hosed down with heavy water, right? Um, comes down, chows the bananas, and then they replace the bananas. So the third monkey thinks, hey, man, I can get bananas as well. So as he climbs up, all the other four monkeys then beat him. They smack him. They whip him, right? Whip. There's a difference. You know how Sarafina said Whip. They whipped him, right? Um, and so he didn't go up to the top. Um, and then the fourth monkey decided, hey, maybe they're not going to whip me. Let me try. So as he climbs up, he gets whipped as well. Um, so then the scientists replaced one of the monkeys with a new monkey. So they put a new monkey in the cage. 
the new monkey doesn't know what happens here, right? So he sees the bananas on top of the ladder, and so he decides, I'm going to climb up. Before he climbs up, he gets whipped, right? They whip him. Um, and, so then, <laughs> and so then a second monkey is replaced. Um, a new monkey enters now, uh, and this new monkey doesn't know what happens here. So he tries to climb up to get the bananas. Guess what happens to him? He gets whipped by all the old monkeys, even the new monkey that was placed in the cage. So a third monkey is replaced. Now there's a third new monkey, doesn't know how things are done here. He tries to climb up. All the monkeys whip him. And this continues until they've replaced all the old monkeys with new ones. Um, and so the fifth monkey to be replaced comes in, tries to get the bananas, and he gets whipped. So the scientists then ask the monkeys, right? Uh, yes, it did happen. They asked the monkeys, uh, <laughs> why do you guys keep on whipping each other? And the monkeys said, these are all the new monkeys, by the way. They all said, well, we don't know. That's how we've always done things here. That's tradition. We've always done things the same way. We don't ask why we do it. We don't ask what the process is. We saw a guy getting clapped. I clapped him, right? <laughs> if another dude comes in, he gets clapped as well. Why? Because that's how we've been doing things here. That's just who we are. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this evening. And before we get there, let me just remind us of where we are, right? We are still under construction. That's the title of our series. Mark has been laboring, laboring rather, in Mark 6, um, this point that discipleship is messy, this process of construction, that God is calling us uh, to walk with Jesus. There's things that God is going to break down in our lives. There's things that God is going to build up in our lives. That whole process is going to be messy. Right? Sometimes we're going to get who God is, who Jesus is, how we're supposed to live in light of what he's done for us. Sometimes we're just not going to get it. It's going to be a messy process. In fact, last week, Pastor Kobedi reminded us of what a construction site looks like. Um, and that is the Christian experience. That is the Christian life. That as you walk through a construction site, you find bricks everywhere, dust, cement, different noises from various machines. It is a messy process. And some of us sitting here as disciples probably need to hear that. Right? that there's, there's grace for you. Amen. There's grace for you. So you don't have to look at your mess and think, hey, there's something wrong with you. God is building. God is bringing something new in your life. And so Mark has labored that, that point for us for the past three weeks in Mark chapter 6. But as we walk around the construction site, there's another thing that's very apparent in a construction site. Right? What is that? Uh, there's dangers. Somebody say dangers. Right? People can fall anywhere, things can fall on people, bricks fall on people, there's fires that can be started, glass can cut people, machines can injure people. There are dangers in a construction site. Hence, it's a requirement that anyone who's going to be in a construction site needs to wear their appropriate safety gear. You need to be aware of what the dangers are in this construction site so that you can find the appropriate safety measure. In fact, that's what Mark is going to do for us in chapter 7. Because in Mark chapter 6, we looked at the messiness of the process of discipleship. In chapter 7, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the dangers that us as disciples can fall into in the process of God constructing us. Amen. 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 Right? 
I think there's only a few sinners here who know the dangers of discipleship. Maybe we'll try that again if you know some of these dangers, right? Amen. Amen. Man, that's more like it. Um, And sometimes I just say amen because I'm black, right? Um, Hundreds. But there are things in the process of becoming more like Jesus that can trip us up, right? Things that are even good, church. Things that can trip us up in the process of becoming like Jesus. Things that could even be good, like sermons, prayers, Bible reading, life groups, mission trips, mercy ministries, etc. Where is the danger in these things? The danger is very subtle. Because we can take all these good things, elevate them above Jesus. Amen. Elevate elevate prayer, elevate sermons, elevate going to life groups, elevate being on a mission trip above Jesus. These are good things. And so the danger is very subtle that we make the process of discipleship about the process and not the one who is changing us into his image. It's very subtle, right? So that when a new monkey a.k.a. a disciple, walks into our community and asks us, hey guys, why do you do the things you do? That we will say like the monkeys, well, we don't know. That's how we've always done things here. Jesus is no longer the heart of anything that we do. Jesus is no longer the heart of our discipleship. Instead, tradition, routine, familiarity, habits, these things that are supposed to be servants and tools in God's hands to make us look like Jesus have suddenly become the end goal. These things have become our destination. Sermons, prayers, Bible reading, prayer, all of that stuff has become the end goal and not Jesus himself anymore as he constructs us there's dangers in this construction site and every disciple needs to be aware of these dangers so we don't fall into the hole um, but instead follow the one who is changing us into his image let me pray um, and ask him to help us with that as we jump straight into uh, the word this evening lord thank you so much um, for who you are jesus Father, we cannot in and of ourselves um, see some of these dangers. We need your word. We need each other. Holy Spirit, we need you. Um, That as you conform us into your image, Jesus, those things that you have placed around us, things that you have given us as gifts, that if we are not careful, we can turn those gifts into our masters. Uh, So I pray, Jesus, that you would help us. Help us. The sin of hypocrisy exists in all of us. And at some point, a disciple who's sitting here knows what it's like to be an actor. Or we're playing a role that you haven't called us to play. And so I do pray, Holy Spirit, that as we dig into your word, as hard as some of the stuff is, that you would really encourage us and help us to live lives that are glorifying to you. Amen. Man, right? So we're going to establish the context of what's happening here first before we get into our first point. Right? I'm breaking tradition today right? because that's the point of the sermon. So we're not going to have three points. We're going to have two. Breaking tradition. Right? Amen. amen. Hallelujah. I know you have to go sleep, bro. That's why you're saying amen. Oh, hallelujah. 
All right. Let's read verses 1 till 4. Read verses 1 till 4 as we establish the context of what's happening in chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes, uh, with some of the scribes, rather, who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verses 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from, or when they, they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So what is happening here? Verses 1, we are told that uh, there's a delegation that comes from Jerusalem. With some of the Pharisees that were there, they draw closer to where Jesus was clearly eating uh, with his disciples. We saw in chapter 6 there was a lot of eating, uh, a lot of bread fish that were given uh, to thousands of people. And so chapter 7, this delegation comes to where Jesus is eating with his disciples. Verses 2, these VIPs look over and see Jesus and his disciples. They are appalled at the fact that his disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. Verses 3 and 4, then Mark really walks us through in a very summarized and quick way down the corridors of the history of the first COVID regulations, right? You see it there in verses 4C, right? These guys washed everything, right? Uh, This is familiar to us. It's not uh, a distant memory when we used to sanitize everything, right, during COVID. I I remember at the height of COVID, I sprayed everything. Sprayed my clothes. Whenever my wife would go to the shops, I would hose her down before she comes into the house and then take those clothes off, put them in the washer immediately, spray all the plastic bags with the food and the food in the plastic bags, right, and spray the fridge that did not go to the shops before I put the food inside the fridge, right? We sprayed everything so much so that sanitizer was like petrol, right? We used it like data, right? Sanitizer was our life. Um, Verses 4b, um, Mark tells us that these guys, when they come from the marketplace, they would not eat unless they have washed. Um, Before we get confused and think that these guys were concerned about hygiene, hygiene was probably there, But that was not their primary concern. That was not the driving force for this tradition or this practice. But instead, these guys were sanitizing themselves from a different kind of COVID. What is that COVID? You, Gentiles, non-Jews who are sitting here. They go to the marketplace, verses 4. Mark tells us who is at the marketplace. It's Gentiles with their unclean self. It's Gentiles with their unclean animals. And so they need to clean themselves. And so the question that Mark is screaming at us, a question that Mark forces us to ask as we read this text, is that did God, in fact, give them the command to keep themselves clean from Gentiles? If that's what they're doing right now. In fact, here Mark does walk us through an actual corridor of history in verses 3. With that last phrase where he says, holding on to the tradition of the elders. Where are these elders? Where do they come from? Where have they been? Mark is asking us to basically go back into time and examine where they might have gotten this tradition. Where did this whole thing start? Did God 
in fact, command them to keep themselves clean from Gentiles. I'm going to break another tradition now as we think about answering that question. Um, So every time we preach here, I'm the only one who reads the Bible, right? Um, But I'm going to ask somebody if they can read the Bible for us, right? Uh, My pastor's not here, so I'm not going to get fired for this. Uh, So I'm going to ask somebody, if you can read Exodus uh, 30, verses 17 till 21. Exodus 30, uh, 17 till 21, as we think about where they might have gotten this tradition from. Anybody? I'm from a black church, so when the black preacher asked somebody to read, he was inviting you to join in into the sermon, right? So let's break tradition. Somebody say break tradition. You freaking out right now. Look at you. You're like, what? what's going to happen? This has never happened. Right? This is... Let's break tradition. Let's break tradition. Amen. Who's going to read for us? Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You, you, know, you know the black preacher would say, Sugu manganyam, sugu. Funda wenanganyam, funda. Amen. Amen. Let's give Mom Keys a round of applause for serving us. For serving us with that. Amen. Right? So as we think about uh, that question again, did God in fact command them to clean themselves from Gentiles, right? Um, commentators tell us that, that this practice that they, they, we're seeing right now in Mark 7 comes all the way from Exodus 30, um, which leads us to our first point for the evening, right? So if you're taking notes, here's our first point for the evening. The art of drifting leads to a drifting heart, right? I'll say that again. The art of drifting leads to a drifting heart. The practice of drifting, staying in the place of drifting away from God's word leads to a heart that drifts. Um, So Exodus 30, four things we find there. We find priests, number one. We find Food offerings, number two. We find the washing of hands and feet, number three. We find the tent of meeting, number four. So if we jump over back to Mark 7, what do we find there? Verses 3, we find that this practice of washing is not restricted to the sons of Aaron, who are the priests. But Mark tells us in verses 3 that this practice is now done by the Pharisees and all the Jews. So how did they move from this practice being the practice of the priests to a practice that is done by all the Jews? Secondly, in Mark 7, uh, we see that this practice was not only for the washing of feet and hands. Verses 4c, these guys sanitized everything. Not just hands, not just their feet. So how did they move from the washing of feet to sanitizing and washing everything? Number three, we see that now in Mark 4, uh, this practice is not just done for food offering, 
but it's done before every meal. How did they move from food offerings in the temple or the tent of meeting to now this practice being done before every meal? How did they drift from that? Number four, we see that in Mark chapter 7, this is not done only in the tent of meeting, but it's effectively done in any other tent at home. Again, how did they move from Exodus 30 to what we see now in Mark 7? And you see that this subtlety, uh, uh, or rather that this is, 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 is subtle, that this echoes a resemblance of the original command But the application of the practice of what we see in Mark 7 is far from the original thing. It's far from the original thing. There's echoes of it. There's washing. There's food. But it's far from the original thing. And not only that, but what we start seeing that these guys have done is that they've started to twist and misconstrue and even work in misinterpreted applications into this very command. Because how did they end up with the thing of Gentiles? If we just think about how God has interacted with non-Jews in the Old Testament, God was warning his own people to stay away from the religious practice and forms of worship of other nations, but not to avoid them as people. That's not what God commanded them to do. How do we know that to be true? Moses, their hero, married a non-Jewish wife. But her beliefs... And worship was of Yahweh, the same God that called Moses. Jonah, one of their prophets, was called to go share the truth of Yahweh with non-Jews in Nineveh so that those Ninevites can abandon their worship of false gods and worship and trust the true God. Jesus himself dies for non-Jews. You're sitting here as a Gentile because Jesus hung on the cross for you. So that you can stop worshipping yourself and the false gods of money and pleasure and midrand, but to turn to him, to worship him as the one and only true God. So how did these guys end up with this practice of having to wash themselves from the market because they were interacting with Gentiles? How did they get themselves in this process? How did they even end up drifting away from what God had originally commanded them in Exodus 30 to where they are now? One commentator helps us with this. Listen to what he says. In the Judaism of that time, they honored the written law, which is God's law. But there was also the oral law, man's tradition and interpretation, which was on top of the written law. Many Jewish leaders of Jesus' time honored the oral law even more than the written law. So can you see what is happening? It's a classical case broken telephone. They move from God's law to just now relying on applications. And they continue interpreting applications and no longer God's law. Let's think about it this way. First generation would read God's law, God's written law. They would interpret God's written law. And then after that, apply God's written law from their interpretation. What happens with the second generation? They don't even bother going to God's law. But instead, they go to the interpretation of the first generation and then apply that interpretation in their time. 
What happens with the third generation, it doesn't even bother to go to God's law. It doesn't even bother going to the interpretation of the first generation, but instead it interprets the applications. So in other words, they did not interpret God's law anymore. They interpret the behavior of the elders. That's what they ended up doing. That's how they ended up drifting, that instead of the heart behind the law that God gave them, they ended up with applications of previous generations. This is what this generation did. How do we apply it to our generation? The next generation says, that's what the subsequent generation did. How do we apply it here? And they move further away more and more from God's law. That's the danger of drifting. That's the subtle drift where they end up with very tight and neat practices that are void of God. And before we point fingers at these guys, remember Jesus is speaking to them while his disciples are listening in. What is the warning that Jesus has given us as disciples? How do we move further and further away from God's law that we end up interpreting behaviors and no longer interpreting God's law. Church, if you go to our auditorium, right? It's the big building behind us. Uh, On top of the door by the cry room, there's a plaque there. Uh, Anyone knows what that plaque says? Okay, Lauren, you're getting fired because you've been at this church for long and you're the first one to shake your head. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm kidding. I just was a Pharisee there. Uh, it, it, it's written God's word above everything. That's the philosophy of this church. We believe that God's word should be above everything. If you come to any of our services, you realize very quickly that God has blessed us with men who fear him and love his word. Right? That behind these pulpits stand men who tremble um, because they love God and they love the people that God has brought before them. But here's the thing. How do we move and drift away from the truth that we put God's word above everything? That if we come on church, come to church rather as disciples, every Sunday and sit here and listen to the sermon. Go back home and not open the same Bible to continue communing with God. And we have entered the drift. You have entered the drift if these sermons and expositions and interpretations of the text, which are proper, are good, and in the the hands of Jesus, they are there to lead us to a place where we look more like Jesus. But if the disciple who sits here on a Sunday evening is going to go home and not open the same Bible that was preached from, from this pulpit to continue communing with the master who wants to make you look like himself, then you have entered into the drift and the sermon has become your final destination. Jesus is no longer the heart of why you listen to any sermon, but Sunday tradition is. Jesus is no longer the heart of why you come to church, but Sunday habit is. This is how I end my week. This is how I start my new week. Jesus is no longer the heart of why you are sitting on that chair. Jesus is no longer the heart of why you gather with other disciples. That's just the Sunday routine that we do. 
I like seeing David's big head. It's the only reason I come to church on a Sunday. Jesus is no longer the heart of why you want to come. See the faces of other disciples and find out what Jesus is doing in their lives to encourage you in the messiness of the discipleship that you are living in. Prayer, reading, gathering, all these things. We start doing them. Because my grandmother did them. My mother did them. I do them. I'm going to teach them to my kids. We become like the monkeys that when everyone, anyone asks you, why do you go to church on Sunday? I don't know. That's how we've always done things, man. You know? We're black. We go to church on Sunday. Ezekiel said we must wear our Sunday best. Like we're going to church with our grandmothers. Why? That's what we've always done. Jesus is no longer the heart of why we do anything. Amen. Some disciples who feel like hypocrites right now. Right? I'm not the only one here. I feel like God is just looking at me. Let's think about our own life here at CCM. In fact, we did this exercise with the young adults on Wednesday, right? Um, we're sitting reading this very passage. And we asked each other, what are some of the things that happen at this church that we've never questioned? Not because we want to be troublemakers, not because we want to be instigators, because if that's who we are, then we've become enemies of the church and enemies of the gospel. No, but we want to be disciples who ask questions about the things that happen at this church, because once we find out those answers, and if they are biblically motivated, then they will increase our deeper worship towards the one who is conforming us into his image. Have you ever asked yourself why we read the ESV at this church and no other version? Or are you just trusting me standing up here? I'm your final destination. Or is Jesus your final destination? Wherever you come from, did you come to CCM to worship CCM? Did you come to Christ Church Midrand to worship the pastors that stand here? Or did you come here and for us to be tools in God's hand to use so that he can draw you to himself? Have you ever asked why only one person, girl or a guy, prays in front, leads us in congregational prayer, and then prays their own prayer that we all say amen to? Why don't we pray together like all these other churches around us? Are you just coming here? Why? Well, that's what the world has done, man. I've been here since COVID, you know? <laughs> Have you asked yourself why we champion life groups? Have you asked yourself why we don't do altar call like other churches? Have you asked yourself why they let a crazy looking pastor like me preach? Weird guy. Again, I'm not saying this so that you can become an instigator. But the disciple who never asks all these things doesn't even think that they are in danger. Sometimes following man's dead religion to hinder them from becoming more like Jesus. But again, if we ask these questions, come talk to me. Come talk to David. Right? Talk to anybody who works at this church. We'll tell you why we do these things. Motivated by the word, again, that's above everything. And once you find out those answers, I'm praying that they would really unlock a deeper sense of worship in you as you walk in the messiness of discipleship with the one who's called you to make you look like himself. But if we don't ask, and disciple, you have entered the art 
of drifting. And once you have entered the art of drifting, your heart will start drifting away from the master that you claim to worship. Hallelujah. Our second point for the evening, right? Our first point was the art of drifting leads to a drifting heart. Our last point, lip service is never, or lip service rather, never leads to deep service. Lip service never leads to deep service. Read with me verses 5 till 8. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, the desire prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Lip service never leads to deep service. So far in our narrative, uh, we actually haven't had any exchange of words between Jesus and the Pharisees. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, one till four, Mark was just painting the scene of what is happening here. In verses five, it's the first time that the Pharisees decide to open their mouth and confront Jesus. By the way, in the Gospel of Mark, in fact, in all the Gospels, we see uh, this over and over again, uh, that the Pharisees and religious leaders try and confront Jesus. It's not the first time this is happening in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 2, 3, and now in 7, we see these leaders again trying to argue Jesus into submission, wanting to accuse him of breaking some man-made rule. In fact, if we summarize this conversation that's happening between Jesus and the Pharisees, um, the Pharisees are telling Jesus that his disciples eat without washing their hands. Why? Because the Pharisees want to see this as a violation of some rule of the elders. Um, And if that is true, that they did violate some rule of the elders, then Jesus as a rabbi is to blame for this. Therefore, Jesus will be accused as a false teacher who leads disciples astray. And if that is true, then we have to kill him. It's not the first time they've done this. It's not the first time they wanted to kill Jesus. In fact, in chapter 2, when they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, in chapter 3, verses 6, they end up with this conclusion. We need to kill this guy. And so even here, they're trying to catch him out so that they can kill him. Jesus sees through their nonsense. He goes straight for for their necks. This is similar to what we see in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, when he's been in the desolate place for 40 days, communing with his father, and Satan comes to him and twists God's word. How does Jesus respond? He responds with the true word of God. And so here, effectively, the agents of Satan trying to twist God's word again. Moving away from what the original text said and trying to catch Jesus on some application that has been passed down by their elders. And Jesus sees through this mess and goes for their necks and gives them God's true word. Disciples, listen, this is, by the way, how a disciple fights. Amen. Right? We can fight with lofty arguments, but let's go back to the word. Let's be people of the word. Amen. Right? When Satan comes, don't run to YouTube, man. 
unto the word. Amen. That's what Jesus does here. How does he do this? We see it in verses 6 where he quotes the prophet Isaiah. In fact, Jesus is doing two things here. He's calling their hypocrisy out, which we'll get into. But the second thing he's doing, what I just said, he's giving them basic Bible handling tools. He's saying to them, you guys hold the oral law above the written law. You have it twisted. You need to hold the written law above everything else. In fact, in verses 9 till 13 uh, that we didn't cover today, Jesus gives them a real-time practical example of how they've bent the fifth commandment. They've started twisting the commandment of having to honor mother and father so that they c- it could suit their agenda. So in verses 6, Jesus calls them hypocrites for doing this. What is a hypocrite? It's an actor. It's somebody who's playing a character. It's somebody who's putting on an act. Somebody who is putting on a show. Somebody who's not living their real life. In fact, the link there to Isaiah is found in Isaiah 29 verses 13, where the Israelites are called out for their hypocrisy by God. They wanted to manipulate God. I mean, even saying that sounds stupid. They wanted to manipulate God with their religious acts, with their religious showing, with their religious performances. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29 verses 13 and says to these guys, this is exactly what you're doing. The same thing that your forefathers did. And so Jesus sees through all of that, through all this smoke, uh, uh, smoke screen. And he says basically the same thing that God said to the Israelites in Isaiah 29 verses 13. You cannot throw sacrifices at my feet while your heart is far away from me. You cannot throw sacrifices at my feet while your heart is far away from me. What was sacrifice supposed to serve for those guys? Sacrifices were supposed to be tools, again, to posture their heart, to humble their hearts, to help them remember who is this God that we are approaching. As they go there with their sacrifice, whatever the sacrifice was, it was supposed to remind them, I need to be humble because I'm entering into the presence of the God of the universe. This is not just my homie. And that's why God would even say to them in 1 Samuel 15, 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. I've called you to obey my commandments. My commandments are an extension of my heart. If you obey them, you love me. You live with me. Don't just throw sacrifices at my feet. I want your heart. That's what God is saying to you this evening, disciple, if you're sitting here. God wants your heart. See, this is a danger in the process of discipleship here. That our hearts could be far from God while we devote ourselves to performing for God. In fact, in verses 6 to 8, Mark gives us the marks of a hypocrite. Somebody who performs for God. Somebody who's throwing sacrifices at the feet of God while their heart is far away from God. Let's think about this for us here, 2023 at CCM. If you've been here for two seconds, you know what our DNA is. Redeemed family of servants on mission. Here's what Mark is saying our DNA is not. 
a redeemed family of lip servants on mission. We are not lip servants on mission. That's not who God has called us to be. In fact, that's the first mark of a hypocrite. Lip service. There are two kinds of lip servants. The first kind of a lip servant is one who talks about service but never does anything about it. You hear? Well, let's talk about it. Even encourage other people. You tell people at work, our service is good, man. As, as you need to serve God, Buffett. But you never do anything about it. Listen to what Andy Mino, one of my favorite Christian rappers, says in his song, Every Word. But talking about truth, do nothing till you pursue it. Want to know the fast track to looking stupid? Talk about obedience and never go do it. Again, you're always talking about the importance of service. You're even encouraging other people, but you never go do it. I always say to the young adults, a Christian who does not serve, but always talks about it, is a vegetarian who eats meat. You're a liar. You are not being a disciple, but you're being a hypocrite. Your heart is as far from God as Jobic is from Limpopo on a skateboard. You're moving, but you're getting nowhere. So don't fall into the temptation of sitting here and thinking to yourself, somebody else is going to do it. And that's the temptation we face, the kind of church that we are part of. Three services, well, somebody's going to do it. Jesus has called me to be part of this church. Why? So I can make the sermons the destination. They're better than the sermons down the road. Nothing moves me to actually step up and respond in service to this God who's called me. I'll talk about how amazing the service is at this church. I always find the chairs done. Sound is always up. And as soon as we say amen, I'm the first one to leave. And I'll get home and tell people, hey, that church... People serve their choice. It's lip service. I was at a camp last week um, in Free State. Nambu, Free State. Yes, my brain was fried with all the Africans. It was rough. Couldn't hear a single thing. Right? Halfway I was like, guys, listen, is this Spanish? What, what's going on here? Right? But that camp is massive, right? It's nothing like the camps we have with our teenagers. Our teenage camps, crossword, right, they probably have at most when they pack like 150 teens. The camp I was at, when it's packed, 4,000 teens, right? This time around, there was like 1,700 because people are afraid of the, the, the lockdown or shutdown on Monday, right? So EFF present, prevented people from going to camp. Um, but it was still massive. I got there super impressed. Everything. Big lights, big sound, everything works. Right? There's a, a media team that's dedicated to just shooting the whole camp. So when the campers wake up, 
There's a camera crew that films that whole entire process from the time they wake up till they eat breakfast. And when they're walking into the hall for the first session, the video is already edited and they're playing it back. Impressive. Everything works. Guys have walkie-talkies, lapel mics, you know, like spies. I'm like, everything works, yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, as if our church, and then I stopped myself in my tracks and realized that at a camp like that where everything works, the seven, grade seven-year-old, right, grade seven-year-old, uh, the, the kid in grade seven, who really just loves Jesus and wants to serve, has no space there. Right? The guy who just wants to come to church has fallen in love with Jesus for the first time and wants to help with printing papers. There's no space for him there. Because their things are efficient, things work on time, and things are skilled. Service is crushed. But a church like ours, if I know we take anything here, <laughs> Alice, I know you're tempted to look at the sound desk. Anything. <laughs> you can come here after the service and ask, where can I serve? Millions of places for you to serve. Right? Do you have to be skilled? No. Do you have to love Jesus? Yeah. This year alone, we've had so many volunteers. Right? Students who are in school or, or, or kids who just finished matric just walked in. They're part of our family and they're like, yo man, I have time in my hands. What can I do? How can I serve the Lord? Right? In fact, we always have a banter with the, with the staff. Right? So, so David is the, for some reason, maybe it's the big head, but da- David always gets these guys who want to serve at student ministry. right? Um, and all the other ministers want to poach the guys. That's the problem we have. People want to serve, and we're all excited to plug them in into various ministries so that they can serve. So why would you deny yourself that opportunity and sit here? Be a hypocrite who only serves with your lips. Lip service never, ever leads to deep service. The second kind of... um, lip servant we find is, is somebody who gives themselves over to service. They do the most, but their heart is far away from God. That's a more dangerous and subtle kind of service. Again, we prize service in this church, but you can throw yourself into service and just go under the radar with no one actually checking on you. That you don't have any accountability. Nobody knows how you're doing spiritually as a disciple. How are you walking with Jesus? Everyone sees you in front, the chairs, you know. You're even painting the walls when we don't need paint. And we all think, I see, that brother's on fire. But your heart is far from Jesus. See, that kind of service we can use to avoid the real reasons why our hearts are far from Jesus. 
You're always just putting your head in. You're always working at the church and you're avoiding the real reason why your heart is far away from God. It's easy to bury your head. It's easy for us to come and perform. Be hypocrites while our hearts are no longer with Jesus. We want to buy the face of other Christians or God is calling you to give him your obedience, not your sacrifice. First, Some of us sitting here are headed for that danger. We're headed for that danger where we're going to start neglecting our relationship with the one who's called us to make us look like himself and we're going to bury ourselves into service. Kate came up here and was like, hey, revive camp. And you thought, another opportunity for me to hide away from God. Kate, what what do you want me to do? Want me to cut papers? Want me to pack everyone's bags? What do you want me to do? Why? Because you're just avoiding being alone with Jesus. Some of us are currently caught up in that hole. Whether you are headed there or you're currently in that hole, there's only one solution for all of us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the one who's called you to look like himself. Fix your eyes on him. Again, week one, we said discipleship is not us coming here to download information so that we can go back home to measure our performance Monday to Saturday. Discipleship is not us sitting here trying to improve our performance for God. But discipleship is sitting here on a Sunday, wanting to meet with the one who has called us into a life where he's making us look like himself. Let me run through the other two marks of a hypocrite and then we'll close. Uh, The second one is found in verses 7. Read with me. We'll read verses 7 and 8 and then we'll close. Um, Start from 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they uh, uh, worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You leave the commands of God, a commandment of God, and hold to the tradition of man. So what are the last two marks of a hypocrite? In verse 7, it's vain worship, right? If you are a lip servant, then the natural progression is downward. Your worship then becomes in vain. Why? Because a disciple is somebody who's called to be a worshiper. You are made to worship God. Sin distorts that, but Jesus in his grace saves you from that enslaving power of sin so that you can be freed to worship him. And so hypocrisy is denying the freedom to worship the master who has saved you to worship, right? If we become hypocrites, we become lip servants, and then our worship declines. The next mark there, again, in verses 6, um, six till 8, um, we see at the end there that another mark of a hypocrite is one who starts forming their own religion. Again, there's a natural progression that goes downward. If you are a lip servant, your worship is in vain. If your worship is in vain, you start then making up your own religion to justify how you ended up in that hole. And you see what verses uh, 7 and 8 say. Uh, You either start teaching or holding on to man's opinions or man's commands and no longer God's word. Why? Because you started making up your religion because your worship is in vain because you have become a lip servant. And so if you are living in that permanent state, 
Jesus is calling you out of that hole today. Jesus is calling you out of that danger and is saying, look at him again. He is the goal of our discipleship. He is the reason why we want to live as disciples. Look to Jesus again. There's going to be many dangers in this process of Jesus discipling us. How do we stay clear of those dangers? Well, we meet Jesus in his very word. We don't twist it. We don't add to it. We don't misconstrue it. But we meet him where he is in his word. And we really give ourselves over as he changes us through that same word. Amen. Amen. Our key takeaway uh, just for this evening, as Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees, again, his disciples are there. So there's a stern warning for these disciples. What is the stern warning I want to leave us with this evening? Do not fall into the danger of replacing Jesus with the tools Jesus is using to disciple you. Do not fall into the danger of replacing Jesus with the tools that Jesus is using to disciple you. Don't make Sunday gatherings your final destination. You are a disciple in the world as well, not just here. Do not make Bible reading an intellectual exercise. Go home and commune with the master who is changing you through his very word. Do not use service as a way to avoid Jesus and gain people's favor. But Jesus is calling you to humble yourself and to fall at his feet. Again, if you have fallen into any of these dangers, just look to the cross of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, yeah, it's, it's very easy, Lord, for us to, to fall into these dangers. Um, when we think of guys in a construction site, Lord, um, we can get a sense that, hey, we've, we've been here. We know how things work here, right? Somebody can throw a brick at me. I could just catch it and not even consider the dangers, so I pray, Father, that you would make us disciples who question and examine things so that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not to be instigators or troublemakers. We fear you. You are holy. You are good. You are righteous. You've called us, filthy as we are, to conform us into your image. So we know that process is not going to be easy. And we know that Satan is not sleeping. And we know that our flesh is still making noise to call us back into our old way of living. But your word is certain. Your word is true. Your word has stood the test of time. Thousands of Christian generations have survived and lived on your word. And so, Father, let that not be different for us. And think because we live in the 21st century, we have some clever way of avoiding these dangers because we are better with all the technology and the money and the resources that are around us. Father, help us not to fall into that temptation, but to be hungry disciples who go to your feet every single day because we want to be with you and be like you. I don't know where these disciples are. You know where they are, Lord. Thank you for using me as a tool so that, Lord, they can go out there, continue communing with you. Let this sermon or my words not be their final destination. In your precious and wonderful name we pray. Amen.